Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Does Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with the man with the deepest voice in geoengineering, Walker Lee. Welcome to the show. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So not only have you got the deepest voice in geoengineering, but considering your career stage, you've probably got the deepest level of knowledge as well, which is quite impressive. Quite terrifying level of progress you've made in your short career so far. We've had you on to interrogate you previously about your work on uh, designing control systems for geoengineering. So I was very impressed by it. It's one of the most interesting papers of the last 12 months. So if people haven't heard that episode, do come back and have a listen to that afterwards, or even now, if you can't bear to stay away from it. But I will give up on my squeaky-voiced interjections and let the man with the Barrel and Manilow dulcet tones, very white rather than Barry Manilow, that's what I meant to say, entertain you with stories of his new paper. What have you been working on? So, yeah, so my most recent work has had to do with geoengineering, stratospheric aerosol injection, specifically focused on the Arctic or the high latitudes. Geoengineering the high latitudes is potentially an attractive option for a couple reasons. Firstly, since the tropopause, that is the, the barrier between the troposphere and the stratosphere is lower, closer to the poles, that means it would be logistically easier to get planes carrying payloads of sulfur dioxide up into the stratosphere to deploy. And so that would be easier both from a time perspective and financial perspective. And secondly, the Arctic is getting hit really hard by global warming. Whenever there's external forcing applied to the climate system, and it can be global warming right now, but this is something that's been observed throughout throughout the, the paleoclimate record as well. Whatever happens to the Earth, the Arctic gets the brunt of it. It's a phenomenon called Arctic amplification. And so right now, it's estimated that the, the very high latitudes are warming uh, between two and four times as much as the rest of the planet on average. And by deploying geoengineering near the, near the Arctic, say at around 60 degrees north, instead of closer to the equator, you could prioritize the effects that you get at, at high latitudes and uh, you get more efficient cooling in the Arctic and you get less perhaps unwanted effects at lower latitudes where, where more of the people are. So I understand this as follows. So if you imagine the, uh, the Earth is a can of spam orbiting mm-hmm. the sun, then the tops of the can of spam won't be experiencing any direct insulation. And it's only the side of the can of spam where it says spam on it that will get any insulation. And therefore, global warming, which works in the outgoing radiation spectrum, will have a much larger effect on the top and the bottom of the can of spam. Was this can of spam to have an atmosphere because its energy is being lost crudely through the polar regions because the tropics are being heated up by the sun because the sun shines on them and the poles, which are you know equivalent to the top of and bottom of the can of spam, they don't get any incident radiation, but they radiate a lot. So they're highly affected by global warming. Now, obviously, the can of spam is a simplification. And even in polar regions, they get a bit of light. And so that's why you might want to do a lot of polar injection. So I, I think you work alongside, don't you, Daniele Vizioni, who's done a lot of work on uh, seasonal injections. I wonder if you could just uh, put that your work into context by mentioning that. Absolutely. So as you in your, your can of, of spam metaphor, it's true that the sides of the can representing the, the equator in the tropics get most of the sunlight 
and that the top and the bottom get less. But as the can of spam travels around the sun, it doesn't stay perfectly aligned to one axis. It kind of wobbles a bit. And this is how we get seasons on the, the surface. So for part of the year, the top of the can will be in darkness. But for part of the year, the top of the can will wolf the sun and a lot of sunlight. And on the other half of the year, it's the bottom of the can that gets full sunlight. And the other, the first half of the year, it'll be in darkness. And so depending on what you, what you want to accomplish with stratospheric aerosol injection, you might be more effective injecting in just part of the year rather than throughout the year. Now, early on in early geoengineering simulations, uh, those use what we call annual or year-round injection, where when you're setting up your climate model to do an experiment, you just plop some sulfur dioxide into whatever grid box you want, and you do the same amount in every month. So it's uniform throughout the year. And if you're, if you're injecting near the equator, where the amount of sunlight that you get is pretty consistent throughout the year, then concentrating all your injection into one season will be less impactful on what happens. Now, I, I should say I'm not totally familiar with uh, Dan's seasonal injection work, so I can't speak too much to the differences as to what happens if you inject, say, in the spring versus in the autumn over 15 degrees north. The goal of stratospheric aerosol injection is specifically to reflect incoming sunlight. And so if you're sprinkling these aerosols over the top of the can during the time of year when that can isn't getting any sunlight, then you're really not going to have any effect. And so when you're geoengineering the Arctic, if you're injecting at, say, 60 north, you want to try and concentrate your aerosols in the time period when you get the most sunlight because you'll have the most effect. The process also works more efficiently as a result of not having so much coagulation. Because if you're only injecting occasionally, then you don't end up sticking to existing aerosols. So you inject in a single splurge in springtime, and then that gives you a good aerosol layer, but you don't then, once the aerosols are formed, you, you try not to inject more material on, onto or near existing aerosols, right? So... I would say it depends. I think it works both ways because aerosols in the stratosphere have a lifetime on the order of years. And so if you spread out your injection over the span of a year, then you'll have sort of a consistent quantity of aerosols and that gives you more time for coagulation. If you do the same amount of injection, but you compress it into like a single three month seasonal injection, then you're, you're sticking the all the same quantity in over a shorter period. And I, I didn't look at this specific variable when I was doing the experiment because it's ultimately, it's not that big of a, not that big of a change, but I think you could get some, could be less efficient in terms of coagulation by, by concentrating all your injections into one season. Uh, however, the, any negative effect you get from that in terms of efficiency is far and far and away outweighed by the better the more efficient effects you have on impacting the surface climate, like lowering temperatures and restoring sea ice and stuff like that. Okay, well, yeah, I mean, I, there may be some controversy on this point, but my understanding of the current science is that the by injecting into clean skies, you waste your precursor sticking to existing aerosols. So I think with that, that it, you know, I respect your views on that, but I think other scientists have a different view. So maybe the science yeah, on that point That, that absolutely could be true. I, I think there's there could be an argument could be made going both ways. There, there's definitely the, the, the fundamental point is absolutely right, that if you get 
there's sort of nonlinear effects that you get. The more you inject, the less efficient it is because as you inject more and more stuff. So let's look at your yeah. injection at high latitudes. What is the engineering advantage? So the first experiments we did injecting at high latitudes was we wanted to determine whether it was more efficient to inject in the, the, the springtime or to inject year round. And the results were pretty deterministic. If you're injecting at high latitudes, you get about double the efficiency by concentrating the same amount of injection in March, April, and May, which are the spring months, rather than spreading it out through the entire year. And now the reason we do March, April, and May, the spring, rather than the summer is because the SO2, the sulfur dioxide that you're putting into the atmosphere, that's not actually what reflects the sunlight. What happens is the sulfur dioxide oxidizes into sulfate aerosols, and those little droplets called aerosols are what reflects the sunlight. And so that takes time. The, the oxidation process is on the order of a month. So if you inject in March, April, May, then you get the peak reflectivity going over the summer months when you, the Arctic gets the most sunlight. Once we determine that the, uh, not necessarily the optimal way, but there's definitely advantages to focusing on springtime injection. And we started to design longer experiments where we actually want to see what happens to the, the surface. And so primary things that we figured out so far is that if you inject aerosols at high latitudes, say over 60 north in the stratosphere, you can reduce the surface temperatures in the Arctic region to the extent that three major variables we looked at, which are sea ice, land ice, and permafrost, all show substantial signs of recovery after about 15 years. You get sea ice cover in the summer, which has been going away, starts to come back. You got carbon captured by permafrost, um, depending on the, how much injection you're doing, you can slow down uh, the, the rate of carbon thaw because of melting permafrost or even reverse it. And areas of the, the Siberian tundra start to become carbon sinks again instead of carbon sources. And you can slow or reverse the melting of the, the Greenland ice. So can you talk me through the technical issues with injecting into high latitudes? That was what I actually wanted you to focus on in your previous question you talk more about the seasonality, which is an important point, but there are some really important technical advantages as well. Yeah. So Wake Smith is over at Yale. He's been collaborating with us recently to uh, talk about sort of the, uh, the, the numbers side of things. I will say that's, that's less of my area of expertise, but I can, I can talk a little bit about my understanding of, of what happens in the Arctic. So uh, it's a loft aerosols to the stratosphere that, that requires a substantial bit of, of air power. We simulate injection five kilometers above the tropopause. And so in the, in the tropics, that's going to put you at between 20 and 25 kilometers. And currently, there's no existing aircraft, to the best of my knowledge, that is capable of lifting payloads on the order of tons of sulfur dioxide up to that altitude and maintaining it long enough to, to disperse the, the payload in the stratosphere and then come back down. However, at high latitudes where the tropopause is lower, there are currently existing aircraft that are capable of lofting a payload to say 13 kilometers, which is not quite as high as we've been going in some of our simulations, but it is high enough. You could clear the tropopause and, uh, and inject, a, inject sulfur dioxide over, over the Arctic. 
So from a logistics perspective, it would be easier to geoengineer the Arctic because that the technology already exists. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that we could do it substantially faster because depending on how much cooling we wanted to do, we might not have enough planes and we might need to build more, which means that it might not actually go any faster in terms of if we decided today that we wanted to geoengineer the Arctic, how quickly could we get it done? If it was a really small program, we might be able to start within the next couple of years. But if it was a larger program, even though the aircraft currently exist or have existed before, that doesn't mean necessarily that we have enough of them to just go and cool the Arctic by two degrees, which is a lot. Very likely to be easier to make more of an existing aircraft than it is to be to have to design one from scratch. So there is an advantage even if you haven't got enough of them. Absolutely. The other point I want to make, you keep mentioning the Arctic, and obviously the Arctic is quite important in terms of being very sensitive to global warming, but there is another pole, and I just wondered if you might talk about that and whether we need to balance the intervention across both poles. That's a really good question. And so I'd say that there's there's two things to, to talk about here, which is number one is geoengineering just the Antarctic. What's the advantage to, to injecting over the South Pole? And two, if you inject in the North Pole to preserve the Arctic, do you also need to inject in the, the Southern Hemisphere for reasons of balance. I personally have not looked into that in great detail yet, but I would say that the answer to both of those questions is probably on the first point, which is would geoengineering over the Antarctic have any effect? I would say that it likely would. The Antarctic is very different from the Arctic in terms of geography because the Arctic, the North Pole is ocean with lots of sea ice at the highest latitudes, whereas Antarctica is a continent and has primarily land ice. So you could definitely reduce surface temperature in the Antarctic by injecting at 60 degrees in the, the Southern Hemisphere spring, which is months of September, October, and November, sort of mirroring what you do in the Northern Hemisphere. 60 degrees north in the spring, March, April, May, and then you inject at 60 degrees south, September, October, November, then yes, you could definitely cool the Antarctic, and that would likely have effects on the, the surface that would reverse some of the effects of global warming in a similar manner to what happens in the North Pole. The other reason that we would want to talk about is if you inject too much in one hemisphere, then you might start to affect the, the temperature balance between the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. And we already know that basically one of the worst things that you could do with geoengineering is if you just injected in the Northern Hemisphere, say 15 degrees north or 30 degrees north, and you did a lot of it, you would completely mess up the, uh, the intertropical convergence zone, things like the monsoons, which feed a lot of people and a lot of people rely on tropical precipitation. And so if you push that in the wrong direction by substantially cooling one hemisphere, then you're going to hurt a lot of people. And so for that reason, we learned pretty quickly that if you're injecting near the equator, you really have to watch the balance of how you inject between the two hemispheres. When you inject at, at 60 north, the first experiments that we did, there wasn't any statistically detectable difference in, the, uh, in tropical precipitation. However, tropical precipitation is really noisy. And so just because we couldn't confirm that we weren't 
doing anything bad to it, that doesn't mean that we weren't. And so hopefully when we get through these longer simulations that we're working on, we can discuss in our manuscript to what extent is there risk of injecting just in, in one hemisphere at high latitudes and, and messing up the tropics, which is the primary reason to my understanding why you want to try and balance your hemispheric injection. So I know you're a bit of a propeller head, but if I could just get you to touch on some of the policy implications here, right? Um, yeah. Bearing in mind countries are in a specific physical position. There aren't countries that are in all latitudes, right? So mm -hmm. is it likely, do you think, that northern countries will want to geoengineer the northern, you're the southern hemisphere people, you can go and sort yourselves out. We're not interested. We're just going to do our own. That's a really interesting question. And I think that when it comes to agreeing on whether or not to do geoengineering, which I don't want to just gloss over that because that's a, a whopper of a topic by itself of whether or not the international community will ever agree to that. I think that because there's fewer people living at the very high latitudes, I think might be easier to reach a consensus. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy, period. If people decide to geoengineer the Arctic, I think that we have enough, we have enough information of that there's, there's knowledge that it might affect the, the tropics. Geoengineering in the northern hemisphere at the Arctic would not substantially affect people in the southern hemisphere in places, say, like Argentina or South Africa or Australia. It's the people in the tropics that we would want to worry about, places like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, India, especially the Caribbean. It's places like that that would be most affected by, let's call it geoengineering gone wrong in the Arctic, where you do too much geoengineering in the Arctic without balancing the other hemisphere. Say for argument's sake that Russia started geoengineering, right? Yeah. They might say, well, look, you know, we, there's, not, there's not a lot of people in the north to ask there's a lot of people in populous areas in the temperate zones in the mid latitudes and we want to preserve the arctic we're going to go ahead and do this we're sure. not saying that no one should do geoengineering in the antarctic but it's not our problem if the australians want to go and do it that's up to them we're not going to get involved in the geopolitics of australia we're not interested in telling australians what to do we're going to look after the northern hemisphere if anybody in the south wants to do it that's up to them do you think that that's likely or realistic that's really interesting. And I think that the specific example you gave was Russia. And I, I dare say that they're maybe a little less concerned about the approval of the rest of the world in the way that the United States or the European Union might be. So I think there is a possibility, not necessarily a big one, but yeah, I think it's possible that someone like Russia could just say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to do this in the, in the Arctic. And if anyone has a problem with it, that's, that's, well, it's your problem. And then it becomes a question of, is someone going to try and do an appropriate amount of geoengineering in the Antarctic in order to balance the effects? And I think that the countries that would likely take the initiative on that, I think the most likely country would actually be India. I am not familiar with the effects of global warming on Australia, besides, I know the Great Barrier Reef is, is dying out pretty quickly. That's several new colors on their temperature map because it's got so terribly hot. Interesting. That is, that is good to know. I, I personally am not that familiar with the state of global warming in Australia, but I think that if there's a, a very, a, like a very strong geoengineering effort in the Arctic and people are worried about tropical precipitation, I think that people who are going to be the most worried about 
do we need to start doing geoengineering right now in the Southern Hemisphere would actually be countries near the equator like India that are worried that the, the tropical monsoon is going to get thrown off and that's going to cause hunger and starvation in the, in the tropical countries. Now, Australia might also be on board with it if geoengineering the very low latitudes near the South Pole would help cool their, their surface temperature. They might be on board with it as well. But I think if there was sort of like an emergency in terms of someone's doing, someone's putting a lot of juice into the Northern Hemisphere and we're worried about effects at the equator, I think that India would be the most concerned. Before this interview, you very kindly sent me a poster that you've done. Yes. But in true reviewer, back to fashion, I was too lazy to read it. So if I had a bother to read your poster, what would I have discovered? I've covered most of it so far, which is... So it's it, the paper was what I brought to the uh, the AGU fall meeting last month, and it's basically a, a preview of the the paper that we're working on here at Cornell. And so the first half talks about why is geoengineering the Arctic potentially a more attractive option than what we call a global strategy, where you're doing most of your injections near the equator. And then we go on to talk about why do we want to inject only in the spring? Why are we putting our aerosols in only in the spring months and not year-round, as most experiments do. And we talk about the simulations that we did, which are two longer 35-year runs. I know that's not really that long for a, a, from a climate perspective, but it's as long as we, basically it's as short as we can get and still get results, where we cut the first 15 years, we call that the transient period, where the aerosols are sort of, we're, we're, uh, we're adjusting the climate system. And then the last 20 years are the, the things that we look at to see how the climate has changed. So we did two of those, one where we do less geoengineering in the Arctic, maybe about a, a degree of cooling, and then one where we do a lot more geoengineering in the Arctic, maybe two degrees of cooling. And then we show some of our results, which are how does sea ice change, how does permafrost change, how does Greenland ice sheet mass change. And then we also look at some of the mechanisms, some of the energy fluxes, how do the different, the different terms of shortwave and longwave radiation, meridional heat transport, how do those change under under an Arctic geoengineering program. Uh, the poster is simply called a geoengineered Arctic high latitude aerosol injection. And who are your co-authors? The, uh, the primary co-authors that are definitely are gonna be listed as authors on the paper are uh, my advisor, Doug McMartin, and Daniela Vizioni, postdoc both here at Cornell, and then Ben Kravitz at Indiana University. And then we're also, we have some other colleagues Yating Chen and John Moore at Beijing Normal University helped us out with the permafrost analysis. And so once we have a draft, we're also going to invite them to be co-authors. And then David Lawrence and Gunter Legai at NCAR helped us out with permafrost and Greenland ice sheet analysis. And so we're also, we would like to invite them to be co-authors as well, if they want to, to look, at, look into the manuscript, or if they just want to be acknowledgements instead of, of Co-authors, that's also totally fine too. So how did you take into account the permafrost effect? Did you have a carbon cycle feedback model or not? So we looked at permafrost in a couple different ways. The primary one was what John Moore and Yating Chen helped us out with, is they, uh, they use an offline model called Pink Panther, which is the best name of a computer program that I've heard in a long time. We, we sent them over our output of our runs, specifically variables of surface temperature, uh, net primary productivity, and similar data sets that they needed. And they sent us back a very nice map of carbon fluxes in the Arctic and how those change 
because of permafrost thaw or the primary variable that we use uh, just to diagnose permafrost is cumulative carbon flux as a function of time. But there's, we can look at that either as a, a single line plot, or we can also look at a, look at a map and see how things change in, in specific areas. So permafrost is one of the more challenging areas of the climate system to model effectively, right? So how, how have things progressed in terms of being able to get reliable models of the behavior of the frost? Because certainly a decade or so ago, it was a major unknown in the climate system in terms of general melt, but also in terms of the ratio of methane versus carbon dioxide, the carbon pool would be mobilized as. That's a really good question, and I'm not sure I can do a good job of answering it. I'm sure that models have progressed in the last, I'm sure certainly they're constantly improving. But in terms of permafrost specifically, at this moment, I wouldn't be able to point out any specific advances that have been made that would do a, a better job of, of modeling permafrost. And that's something I'm going to have to look into when I'm writing the, the background of my paper, that it's certainly <laughs> models aren't perfect. But you notice your results driven by methane excursion from permafrost, or was that not or something that you had to take into account? That's a really good question, and I don't know. The results that we are looking at right now are just total carbon, and whether it's in the form of carbon dioxide or methane, I couldn't tell you. And that's an excellent point, and it's something that I should figure out. Well, yeah, the, I mean, that's really important because the difference is like carbon dioxide which is shove and methane's a punch, right? It yeah. has a shorter, more powerful effect. Absolutely. So that, that's kind of a dream team of, of authors that you've got there. And it, it's really interesting to see the development of this field. We, we've now sort of seen the Cornell program injection regime, which is moving to this highly seasonal, high latitude, low altitude injection, which ha- seems to have a, a wide variety of different benefits, both technical and climatic. Do you think that this is now becoming settled science or do you think that there's still a lot of debate as to whether the Cornell scheme is, is going to be the, the best approach to geoengineering? Have you got some rival geoengineers in, in other campuses who uh, have got schemes that they consider better than yours? That is an excellent question. First, when it comes to settled science, I would say that as sort of a disclaimer, because the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of geoengineering research can only be done through climate models, the science when it comes to geoengineering will almost certainly never be settled unless we actually try to do a, a full-scale deployment of geoengineering. Because climate models are always evolving and always improving, anything that we believe to be true right now, we can only say as confidently as we believe in our models. And so while I think there's a lot of sort of the fundamental questions we are, we're fairly confident on, yes, geoengineering will almost certainly or even certainly will cool the surface temperature because we've seen volcanoes do it. Beyond that, it's things start to get a little murky. And that's one of the sort of major challenges to geoengineering research both from a technical perspective and from a policy perspective. My advisor is, is fond of saying all models are lies, but some are useful. And so I think that while we can say pretty confidently some of the things that we're researching are likely to be true, we're not going to be able to get much better than likely 
probably just indefinitely unless we actually started a program. And so when it comes to figuring out which geoengineering idea is the best, it's largely a, a subjective question because it depends on what's the best way to do geoengineering. That depends on the, the results. How much does it cost? How long before we can start doing it? How, how is it going to affect the people on the surface? What climate variables are we trying to change and how are we trying to change them? When it comes to the Arctic specifically, there's not really a lot. I wouldn't say that as far as I'm aware, there's anybody we, that the, um, our lab has any rivals who think that there's a, a better way to do geoengineering in the Arctic, at least through stratospheric aerosol injection, because we're, we're, we are, we're one of the, the only groups looking at it right now. And at least in terms of doing climate model experiments to see what happens if you do high latitude geoengineering, specifically in the Arctic. There's, there's only one paper that I'm aware of about high latitude geoengineering that came out before we started looking at it. A lot of people have looked at effects on the Arctic of global geoengineering strategies. But as far as I know, we're the first to try and do a really comprehensive look at what happens if you explicitly try and geoengineer the Arctic. If you look at geoengineering... Daniel Visioni did a springtime paper. So the, the alternating hemisphere springtime paper, and that came out about 18 months, two years ago. So, and that was part of the, you know, that's the sort of Cornell Mafia, right? Who, who came up with that paper. So, you know, that is not necessarily settled science, but it's certainly out there in the literature. Whereas, you know, 10, 10 years ago, people were talking about injecting into the ascending arm of the Brewer Dobson circulation in the tropical or equatorial stratosphere, right? And that's now sort of seen as being a bit of a busted flush, as far as I understand. Is that correct or not? I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Is so I'm slightly familiar with the Brudopsin circulation, just in terms of its general direction. I when it comes to injecting specifically into the ascending arm of it, I'm I'm not familiar with that research. I think that was Blackstock, I think, was involved in a in a paper which discussed that around uh, twelve years ago. So it's it's got quite a long pedigree, but this definitely seems to have fallen out of favour nowadays. And this kind of combination of near-term engineering and the calculation issues and the seasonal benefit from injecting in the polar latitudes mm -hmm. seems to be a bit of a winner, really. If I could ask you something from previous and earlier section in our discussions, I wanted to draw you on the ratio of benefits, right? So okay. you have a... A situation where you've got a range of different things which are beneficial so you've got the near-term technical feasibility you've got the the optical efficiency and you've got the the ability to geoengineer without creating a mess in the tropical latitudes so mm -hmm. if you could kind of give me a pie sliced according to which you see as being the most important benefits then what what do you think is the most attractive elements or the most important elements that are motivating the choice of the Cornell scheme versus other rival? I would say it's about 50-50, just in terms of the two major categories of high latitude geoengineering versus global geoengineering. I'd say half of it is sort of the, the more practical indirect benefits of it would be easier, it would be cheaper, there's less people that would be directly impacted by it. And so that might make it politically easy. I'd say half of it is about that. 
The other half is the direct benefit you get to the Arctic. But then again, that kind of ties into the, the fact that you're doing high latitude stuff with less effects at low latitudes. There would be benefits to, to doing geoengineering at low latitudes too. So maybe it's less of a strictly divided pie chart and maybe some of the colors would blend together a little bit in terms of high latitude versus low latitude stuff because there's practical benefits to that, but also political ones. And so I'd, I'd be inclined to go just for 50-50 is my initial reaction. Well, I don't think it's as... No, there's a, yeah. a mealy-mouthed Prince-sitting politician's answer there. You, 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 didn't, uh, you didn't... I know. Uh, ...come yeah. down on either side of don't the Don't be defense. And Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you excuse that. So what weaknesses are there in, in following this approach? Because I don't know whether you kind of acknowledge any obvious weaknesses or whether you just genuinely think that every aspect of it is brilliant. Yeah, that's a, that's a totally fair question and a good one. I'd say that Firstly, whatever weaknesses of geoengineering there are as a whole, Arctic geoengineering is not immune to these weaknesses by any, any sense. As I was talking about earlier, everything that we look at is almost exclusively through climate models. So we can only be as sure as our, as our climate models are. And that's a... Yeah, I get, I get it. I'm not asking about geoengineering versus not geoengineering. I'm basically talk, asking you to sort of compare the Cornell scheme to other schemes and say, well, look, you acknowledge any weaknesses in the Cornell scheme. Is there anything that you know that it's rubbish at or that you'll admit that it's rubbish at? Or, or do you just think that every aspect of it compared to other geoengineering schemes is just brilliant? Uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of a cop-out cheesy politician answer again and say that it's not necessarily better. It's just different. The, I mean, the downside of geoengineering the Arctic is that you're not geoengineering the rest of the planet. And so there's, I mean, if you're doing geoengineering at just 60 North, you're going to get fewer cooling effects at the tropics and zero cooling effects at the Antarctic. And unless you want to also do geoengineering in the Antarctic, which might be necessary to regulate tropical precipitation. That's just not true. I mean, like the world was cooler in the glacial epoch because you had, you know, global cooling from having a primarily a cooler northern hemisphere right and and that was to some extent solar radiation management effect you had an ice albedo feedback feedback you had the laurentide ice sheet over north america and and that created a global cooling effect and one of the advantages of the cornell scheme that i see personally is that you can potentially overcool the arctic so you say that the tropics won't be affected which is just not true you can just i'm, not, say, I'm not saying it's one of the effect- affected. i'll say it'd be affected less yeah, okay, that's, that, that's more, and a more accurate answer. The point being that, let's say, for example, you wanted to sort of hit the kind of emergency stop button on climate change, right? And you wanted to overcool the Arctic. So you'd actually cool it below pre-industrial temperatures. Now, okay. I'm not saying that's a good idea, but there are reasons why you might want to consider that. One of the things that be um, the most obvious benefit is if you have an, an ice sheet instability. So you were just faced with a simple, instantaneous, dichotomous choice do we overcool right now or do we end up with the collapse of a major glacier system? Right. Sure. So sure. that would obviously be a, you know, absolutely catastrophic result. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying that it's a good idea to overcool, but what I'm saying is that it's feasible that people yeah. might in future decide that it was a good idea. to yeah, overcool. It might be on and, the table in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I, under, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Now, freezing the knackers off everybody in Nigeria isn't necessarily what you want to do, right? So, although Kate Rickey has got 
paper that very interesting paper about overcalling proposing exactly that kind of thing more for as a thought experiment than she seriously wants to freeze nigeria but it's worth at least debating these things and yeah. the uh let's assume that we don't want to freeze nigerians then you might just want to call the glacial or relatively call the glacier regions mm -hmm. so that you you have minimal cooling in the tropics and very very aggressive potentially above pre-industrial cooling in the mid and high latitudes because sure. that's where the ice is vulnerable right so it's conceivable that the cornell scheme would actually permit overcooling in a way that a scheme which was more evenly balanced might be politically or economically unfeasible to do mm -hmm. due to the impacts on tropical agriculture for example right so okay. that's one of the advantages of the cornell scheme. So I, I actually really like the cornell scheme and i'm really glad that you guys are doing a load of work on it and i'm i'm thinking about this and trying to come up with some petty but yet amusing reason to reject your work but i don't really want to because i think there's not a lot of point in having a podcast if we just reject absolutely everything sometimes you've got to call <laughs> it out and say you know this this stuff is genuinely pretty good and like you know all works flawed you can always find a flaw in everything right but i actually really like what you're doing i like the cornell scheme i think you've got a real reservoir of talent i think that you know danielle visioni for example is sort of widely acknowledged as being one of the most able experts in stratospheric dynamic modeling and 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 that is a you know it's, a, it's an important asset and we should be you know not be frightened to knowledge talent where it's found that's wonderful time. the guy's a genius in every every regard and he's just a fantastic researcher and i'm super lucky that i get to work with him on yeah and i've, I've worked with doug as well and i think that doug is you know as far as, far as i understand it he's an engineer by training rather than atmospheric scientist but yeah I'm the same is true very, about himself yeah yeah, because you're a mechanical engineering grease monkey, aren't you? That was your yeah. background. Yep. Yeah, same same as me. So I feel your pain. <laughs> but I really like the way that um, Doug is great at calling out the sort of entrenched institutional bullshit and and blowhards. He's very good at cutting people down. So I think that you know I'm a really big fan of the Cornell Mafia. I think they're a really they're not necessarily prominent a research group as say the harvard team but i think that they you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of their media presence the competence of the team and the quality of their outputs is really good and i think this new movement towards the cornell scheme is testament to that it, i think it's good science and i think that it's also driving discipline forward in terms of you know it, even if it was wrong it would be worth putting out right but i don't think it is wrong from what I understand of it, which is obviously not as much as an actual stratospheric dynamicist, it does seem to be a pretty sensible scheme. All the engineering stuff seems to be pretty sensible. And one of the big hurdles of, the, of geoengineering is if you can't test it without spending $100 million developing aircraft, then it really does slow your development process down, right? So yeah. it's, a great, it's, it's a great benefit to be able to do it with aircraft that are just lying around either in inventories or alternatively that have been mothballed or put in boneyards or whatever. And I think there are quite a lot of uh, the tankers, the KC-135, I think, is the tanker that could be adapted for this. And I guess there'll be something potentially relatively similar from Warsaw Pact countries. You know, not unaware that the Warsaw Pact is no longer there, but these are Cold War era jets that we're talking about, right? They, they're a historic item, still in use and still sold to developing world militaries and still I think in US inventory although they had a new tanker aircraft has come in since then but the KC-135 is very high flying which makes it great for our purposes so I'm not I you know you probably don't have to say a lot in your defense because I, I quite like what you've done I haven't given you much of a 
kicking. So the only thing I can reject your paper for is sounding like Darth Vader. It's <laughs> uh, a tenuous reason for rejection, particularly bear in mind that your paper is written and not yet written, in fact. So I can't even reject it anyway because it's not yet written. But I'm not going to reject it because I like it. Is there anything else you want to say? Anything else you think we haven't covered? Or, or is that is that it? Quite happy that we've given you the very gentle shoeing that we've given you today. We, well, we've gone over most of the, the important stuff. I mean, there's lots of other technical stuff that I'm looking at, like the different energy fluxes and stuff, but that's not, that's, that's that boring. Not, yeah. Yep. That, that's totally fair. Yep. It is, it is boring. Even for me, sometimes there's just so many arrows on a, a little block diagram that it's hard to keep track of them all. So yeah, I'm sure that probably wouldn't make for very good listening for. Uh, okay. We for, cover the main points, you know, as long as yeah. people can stay on top of your paper and get, the implications yeah. of it, see how it's done, fit into the landscape. That's what we're aiming for. So short and sweet podcast. Thanks for coming on. I'll, I will wrap it up there and I'll, hopefully we'll have your dulcet tones back on to do a bit more of a general chat because you've, you've graced the reviewer two podcast on a couple of occasions and given us the benefit of your wisdom or ignorance, depending on the view, listeners' um, <laughs> perspective of, on no general matters. There. But you were not easy to draw on that today, but hopefully in coming weeks you might come on for a general conf lab because there's been quite a lot to talk about and no one to talk about it with. So hopefully we'll drag you back. So um, I'll finish it there and um, you can have a review or two biscuit and a cup of tea on the way out rather than <laughs> our more traditional boot print on your ass. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me.